Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And this is Get Off My World, the Doctor Who podcast featuring uh, three men and the occasional guest of a certain age who love the classic series of Doctor Who and try their best to like the new series as well. And not only that, this is the episode that we are considering. I mean, I I realize you can kind of parse this a number of different ways, but this is this episode we are considering our second anniversary of doing this podcast, and as such, we are actually inviting our tech person, Tony Karna, to be our guest and actually participate and have voice. <laughs> like a full-fledged person. That's oh. true. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That guy know. over there by the mixing board. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't notice you there. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting at your kitchen table for two years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I believe now we will uh, start things off as we like to do with temporal grace because we can sometimes become crabby old geeks uh about our favorite show uh but we want to start off with something a little positive here so our temporal grace pat do you have one well yeah i'll start calvin uh, because gene wilder just died recently mm-hmm. i'm not sure when this episode will be airing but uh, as we're recording it it was only just a few weeks ago like a lot of other people in the world i watched blazing saddles again So, first to remind all of our listeners, he was, uh, Gene Wilder was, of course, among his other distinctions, the alternate fourth doctor in the American fan video we talked about about two years ago on this podcast. But, more to the point, I'd forgotten the scene in Blazing Saddles where Cleavon Little takes himself hostage with a six-shooter to his head. (laughs) The lady is screaming, Will no one help that poor man? (laughs) Uh, If I'd remembered this, during our discussion of the Eighth Doctor television movie, I would have given appropriate credit because Paul McGann does exactly the same thing in front of the motorcycle policeman there. And I don't know whether that is because the writer of the TV movie, writers... Uh, saw Blazing Saddles and thought of it, or it was just a wonderful coincidence. But it is wow. a wonderful coincidence, and that's why I'm sharing it right now. Thank you. I love that. That is cool, yeah. Well, um, I would like to use this opportunity to be narcissistic and uh, plug uh, a, another podcast I'm doing, because my only my only platform for plugging a podcast is my other podcast. Come on. You cheater. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> there might be some crossover listeners. So if you listeners are interested in old time radio, if you are big old time radio nerds, or if you if you're seventy five years old, <laughs> if you've never heard old time radio, this is a good gateway podcast to old time radio. It's called the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, and it is myself um, and a couple other local theater nerds, Tim Uran and Eric Webster. Tim's been on the podcast. Tim has been one of our guests, yes, in our first year. And the podcast presents full old-time radio episodes with a little historical info in front and a brief 
um, by Get Off My World Standards discussion <laughs> of the episode afterwards. And, and our, our idea is to sort of discuss it from the framework. Is, does, it, does it still stand the test of time? Is, is it relevant or is it purely a historical curiosity? Um, and so I think it is a lot of fun. And I hope you guys will check it out. It is on ghoulishdelights.com. But it's also made me think about Doctor Who. Because this is a Doctor Who podcast. And listening to those old-time radio shows um, made me think of where I got my love of Big Finish. Because I love audio entertainment. And so sometime for this podcast, I really want to do our own Doctor Who Unbound. In which we imagine, what if Doctor Who was performed in the golden age of American radio. So I think I'd love to hear, you know, Orson Welles and Agnes Moorhead as the Doctor and his companion Margot. The web of time bears bitter fruit. It works, right? <laughs> and you could do Edward G. Robinson as the master. <laughs> Peter Lorre is obviously my favorite old-time bad guy, I think, uh, would would have to be Davros, the screaming, ranting Yes, <laughs> Yes. I can totally picture that. I am your creator. You will obey me. I can kind of picture or- Orson Welles as the Black Guardian. Kind of. <laughs> My temporal grace is uh, exceedingly tangential, as they often are. But uh, I was on Facebook, and there was this meme that was getting uh, passed around a little bit of, I guess it's supposed to be a page from some sort of, like, pagan guidebook of, like, rituals you can do. And it was something like a calming ritual with the moon or something. And it was like, like you know, step one, go outside, look at the full moon, yell as loud as you can, take a deep breath, look at the moon, yell as loud as you can, take a deep breath, take a rock, Throw it at the moon while yelling, "Fuck you, space egg!" <laughs> <laughs> and like this, this would make you feel calmer and more centered. And more one, the expression "Fuck you, space egg," of course, made me think of "Kill the Moon." <laughs> and I'm like, I am totally on board with this magic ritual. And it did make me feel more peaceful and more at one with everything. Like, yes, these pagan goofballs share my distaste. <laughs> and your Ida feed. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. So mine is a little tangential. It's about Arthur Darville. And who is in Legends of Tomorrow that we just picked up yeah. by CW. I forget what even network it's on. I never watch anything on actual television anymore. So it's the CW. What it, is the CW. it must yeah. be the CW. And I'm, I'm very happy that that show got picked up for a second season. We, we were just talking about it a little bit uh, before we started recording. And it's not necessarily a good show, but it's a fun show. Mm-hmm. And it, it gets so many references to other DC characters and properties. And, and it just kind of just revels in in what it is and so it's I'm, I'm glad that they're doing that for a second season because it also then just kind of builds into all the other shows that are attached to it and it makes a really fun universe to watch and and i'm glad it's being carried forward well so, I, when i heard of legends i haven't seen any of legends of tomorrow yet but like when i heard like they were bringing rip hunter into it and, and that's, that's Arthur Darwin. And that's mm-hmm. Arthur, and, yep. you know, and that a Doctor Who actor is playing Rip Hunter. I just, it was one of those things where I just had to kind of sit down for a moment and go like, I live in a time where a character as obscure as Rip Hunter is like the centerpiece of a TV show. This yep. would be like a yep. paradise to Socrates. <laughs> or Cesare Borgia. <laughs> it's a heaven on earth. 
So, for our second round, our special topics Dalek, the idea is that one of us presents a question to the others, and we answer it. As this is our second anniversary episode, I want to ask all three of you gentlemen, how are you guys doing? How are you? I'm doing quite well. What what are you up to? (laughs) Our listeners may not know this, but this is the first recording session that we've done in quite a long time Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't at Convergence or Console Room. Or recorded four months ago. Four months ago. So we've all had very busy summers. We're now well embarked into fall, but I think we've had a lot of stuff to talk about. So putting aside for the moment our podcast that we haven't uh, actually done in a little while, what have we been up to? How about you, Josh? Uh, You were in the Minnesota or the Twin Cities Fringe Festival. I did a show in which I played a tree. Well, it was a fantastic trick. That sounds exciting, Josh. It was. I stole, it was a, stole a lot of scenes from you what I heard. I've been told. I stood perfectly still in the background during a theater scene and just watched the actors and watched everyone react and watched them working so hard. While Welcome knew, to my world. <laughs> no, they were just working their, working their little butts off, and I was just standing there as a tree holding an apple. Stealing the show, as Tony said. <laughs> and not hurting yourself on stage. Yeah. yeah. What so, was the show? It was a show uh, called Apple Picking by uh, Ben Sandell, a local stand-up comic and playwright. Um, so it was sort of this strange, existential, dark crime comedy. So uh, we, I, I had a very fun summer. And, of course... Hanging out at science fiction conventions with you guys was great fun as well. You you old flatterer. No. How about you, Tony? Uh, Well, I was in the Fringe Festival as well, only as a venue technician. Probably the uh, one of the most interesting things that happened in my venue, other than Kelvin's show, which was very entertaining. About uh, an office in hell, shenanigans ensued. Uh, We had an evening, two evenings, where there was a bat loose in the theater because it is an old converted church and the night my night that the bat was loose was during the last show of the night and it was during a scene that was set in a church and so <laughs> half of the audience tried to crawl under their seats uh, a third of the actors tried to crawl under whatever they were sitting on on stage but one of the the actresses on stage had the presence of mind to grab the crucifix from the corner of the stage and hold it up as if she was warding off Christopher Lee, which made the, <laughs> made the other third of the actors fall to the stage with laughter. And we did manage to catch the bat successfully and turn it loose. The Fringe Festival has a strict 60-minute time limit. Yeah. Did you, oh, that's right. That's did, you, right. <laughs> did you get through the show? How much time did that we, eat up? We did. It was the last show of the night. Uh, but okay. I did hear one of the actors say to the other as we were escorting the bat out of the theater, is this going to count towards our time? <laughs> Like the image of escorting the bat out. Yeah. Sir, yeah. sir. Each by the sir, way, you please. have his wing, right? Here. Well, <laughs> you've got a few too many moths tonight, yeah. Mr. Bat. You need to leave. He was, he was let out gently to the curb. It was fine. As as Tony said, I uh, wrote and produced a, a play for the Fringe Festival called Damned If You Do, which was, in fact, uh, a workplace comedy set in hell. Uh, this was my first time... Uh, self-producing uh, a thing that actually had other people in it. Previously, I'd done uh, one-person shows of various kinds, uh, but this I had a, a fantastic cast. I had uh, Don Krasnowski and Lana Rosario, who uh, are both on the Screw It 
podcast. Uh, it's a really fun podcast about wine. supposedly wine tasting, but <laughs> I, I think it's more about we're just going to drink wine and, and say whatever comes into our hands. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, podcast. And uh, the fourth cast member was Nick Glover, who I performed with uh, as a part of Vilification Tennis. He did a wonderful job. It was his first time doing a formal scripted acting. And uh, this winter... I got cast in the local production of A Klingon Christmas Carol. Oh, wow. And who are you playing? And I am, I am playing Scrooge, which is the Ebenezer Scrooge character. Nice. It's all performed in Klingon. I will I will have to uh, learn a language that doesn't exist, uh, wear a lot of makeup and costuming. I have to do uh, stage combat type things. Uh, it's it's going to be probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done as an actor, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And that's directed by Tim Uren. Tim Uren right? is directing it, and yeah. oh. uh, uh, somewhat coincidentally, uh, Don Krasnowski and Lana Rosario are both in A Klingon Christmas Carol uh, as well. Oh, it's like there's only like six actors in yeah, the Twin I, Cities. I, I, I think this I think, podcast controls all small theater yeah. in the Twin Cities. <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely little pockets of of actors that work together a lot. What did you do this summer? You know, you, you did gu- some theater. You know, you guys, I've pimped my latest book on this show before, so I won't do it again. Zones of Control, co-edited with <laughs> Matthew Kirschenbaum of the University of Maryland, now available from Amazon and any other good bookstore. It's about wargaming. Uh, I presented about this book at a couple of different venues this summer. Uh, first at the Center for Naval Analyses in Arlington, Virginia which, for people who might not be familiar with it, is sort of like the naval equivalent of the Air Force's RAND Corporation. Uh, This is high-level, way-above-Doctor-Who-pay-grade stuff for me. (laughs) This is... uh, Anyway, you know, I'm talking to Pentagon people and stuff like that. My co-editor, Matt, and I presented there. Uh, I also gave a separate presentation about Zones of Control to the uh, International Game Designers Association Twin Cities chapter. And uh, beyond that, not related to Zones of Control, Carrie and I took a trip to Italy and Malta. Uh, so we were gone for about three weeks, and uh, there, I could talk about that all day because that was terrific and wonderful. Uh, but then, yes, I also uh, did do some uh, local theater. I, I'm a part of a group called American Civic Forum. We read great speeches and various other things from American history, and uh, we also appeared at the Fringe Festival this year reading famous Supreme Court decisions. I had the opportunity to read Antonin Scalia. <laughs> Everyone here knows my politics, so I, I, I don't have a lot of love for the late Justice Scalia, but uh, he could write. Uh, so I was part of that, and I was part of uh, local theatrical impresario Philip Lowe's show, The Not-So-Silent Planet, where I read a short story along with two other local performers reading theirs. And so this is my first Fringe Festival, and it was great fun, and I hope to do it again in the future. So what we really found out here is that most of the time people have to pay to hear our nonsense, but here, this is the one free outlet to hear us ramble incoherently. So if you ever want to know what a Klingon Scrooge in a tree sound like, (laughs) just hanging out, talking about Doctor Who, it's kind of like this. All right, and now round three, the randomizer. Uh, We have disabled the randomizer, though, for our second anniversary so that we can discuss the second story in the second season of The Second Doctor, in which only the second episode exists. Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
It's like it was meant to be. And that is The Abominable Snowman by Mervyn Heisman and Henry Lincoln. They also obviously wrote the sequel, The Web of Fear, which we've already discussed a few episodes ago, and The Dominators which we may never discuss. <laughs> no, we'll eventually discuss the Dominators. Interesting point here about Henry Lincoln. Mm-hmm. I, I dug this up. He is one of the co-authors of the 1982 book The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which is a relatively famous work of pseudo-historical nonsense <laughs> that propounds the theory that Jesus Christ started a bloodline that later intermarried with the Frankish Merovingian the royal Merovingian dynasty. Thing. Yes, yes, and of course, this was. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's the inspiration for Dan Brown's okay. bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. And wow. the histori- historicity of this has been described as a work thoroughly debunked by scholars and critics alike. <laughs> so, yes, after leaving Doctor Who, Henry Lincoln went into realms of woo. It's also directed by Gerald Blake, about whom I know nothing. So, as we said, this is something that we had to watch mainly as a reconstruction. Only yes. episode two exists. So Yeah, it was that, tricky dialing this up on YouTube because I'm never quite sure what I'm actually getting on YouTube when I dial up something like this. Because, like, well, the description looks like it's close, so I'll yeah. try it. And, you know, it's like, first you see white guys running around in Tibetan monasteries. It's like, oh, it's the Doctor Strange trailer. Oh, it's actually Doctor <laughs> <laughs> Generally speaking, the loose cannon reconstructions are the ones that you want to go for. Yeah, I, I discovered that pretty quickly because the others were... Pretty, uh, Garbage. Hard, yeah, hard to watch. Yeah. Uh, but the episode two, the restored version that I watched, is really beautiful. I love it. It's really, yeah. I love looks it. Really it, it, nice. it, it, it. It was so good uh, that it kind of frustrated me that I couldn't really concentrate on the other episodes that yeah. I was watching. I was struck that uh, the makeup wasn't as horribly yellow facey as I would have expected. Oh, it's in black and white. Well, boom, boom. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it was pretty subdued. I mean, they, they don't go to, like, some weird effort to make everyone look Asian. It's better than Talents of Wang Chiang. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And there isn't even that many uh, attempts uh, on the actor's part to do any kind of an accent. Except no. for, like, the, I can't think of the character's name, but, like, the second-in-command monk who kind of does that weird sing-songy voice that seems mm-hmm. to be a British actor's oh, yeah, idea yeah. of what an Asian yeah. accent is. Cree-song. Cree-song. That was Cree-song. Yeah. Okay. I was kind of pleasantly surprised by that. It's like, this could have been racism on ice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a working <laughs> title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by the way, uh, Cree-song. Norman Jones, mm-hmm. also Major Baker in the Silurians, who we talked about in our third episode, and Hieronymus in Mask of Mandrago. Yes, I, I, re- I recognize oh, the yeah. name. He's Hieronymus, mm-hmm. yeah. These guys just keep coming back. Mm-hmm. I can't stay away. One of my favorite parts of it is the yetis, the adorable yetis, toddling down the mountainside. <laughs> to be like, so careful. But one thing that I hadn't realized until I revisited this is that they referred to these gentle shy yeti that clearly exist and then there's a callback at the end where they they see one and so i found it kind of interesting that there's an in-universe explanation for how adorable the evil killer robots look because they're based (laughs) on these shy gentle adorable real yetis (laughs) well it's that jerk face great intelligence he comes down and he's like i'm gonna make my evil killers look just like these cute Yeti that exists, and then later on, when he's Richard E. Grant, he comes down and makes him look like snowman, yeah. who everybody wants to know. Yeah, yes. I, I have to admit, 
it was always that was always a barrier for me because I, I know the Yeti are like one of the more beloved Doctor Who monsters, and I've never been able to take them seriously because they're they're so roly poly. Mm-hmm. There's that that big scene in Web of Fear where the soldiers are fighting them and they all get ruthlessly murdered by these cuddly guys. It, it's the only really effective <laughs> yes. Yeti scene, yes. and that's so. Douglas Camfield who yeah. made that happen as the director. Well, you know, Kelvin and I just watched the other day. Yeah. Uh, the 1957 Hammer film, The Abominable Snowman, with Peter Cushing. Oh. Yeah, which is... His first, it was his first Hammer film, I think. It, yeah, it's, well, it's very close to it. Yeah. It, it's 1957, mm-hmm. and um, our old friend Matt Kesson, who was watching it with us, who's the monster expert, says that that was very, very close to when the idea of The Abominable Snowman popped up in popular consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We think of cryptozoology as always existing, I guess, but you know, apparently for people who care about these things, there are <laughs> dates where you can say, oh, yes, before this point, nobody cared about the Loch Ness Monster. Mm-hmm. Before this point, nobody cared about the Abominable Snowman. And so in 1957, where the Hammer Horror film, when that was made, that was fairly close to ground zero of people giving a shit about the Yeti. And so this is only 10 years after that. But the, the similarities and contrasts are interesting. The Yeti and the, uh, the Hammer movie are very peaceful and noble. And a lot of the point of that movie, which was written by Nigel Neal, by the way, who wrote the Quatermass stuff, yeah. was that they, they just seem to be kind of a catalyst for human insecurities. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to exist, and we're going to destabilize your psychology around you, because there, there are certain psychic abilities that they have. But the horror, such as it is, comes from within the human beings that are mm-hmm. interacting with them. Whereas in this story, which is interesting. It's about ten years later, so the the writers would have seen, or at, at least known about, the uh, the Nigel Neal story. Now here they fully externalized it. Literally externalized it. There's a great intelligence from outer space that comes and controls the Yeti, and now it's kind of a conventional thing. It's Now it's an outside thing. Yeah. Now it's something that's going to hurt you instead of just something that exists out there and you should probably leave it alone, but because you interact with it, you destroy yourselves. Yeah. Which is what the, I think, far more sophisticated Nigel Neal <laughs> uh, movie, which also started as a BBC television yeah. drama. Well, how much yeah. of this portrayal of the Yeti was really due to the fact that they were trying at the time to find a new Dalek? Yeah. So they're robots and that's always the search. Yeah, and clearly people responded well. They did Web of Fear, and I read they were going to do a third one too. But there was some some sort of falling out with the writers over the Dominators. That sounds right. Our listeners can call in to correct us. us. (laughs) I did read one really entertaining, whether it's true or not, anecdote from Jack Watling, who claimed that on the set at some point one of the guys playing the Yeti fell like hundreds of feet down the side of the mountain and everyone was like oh my gosh I think he's dead and they according to Jack uh, they, they got down there and found out that the guy was just tanked <laughs> and he'd fallen these hundreds of feet but the giant cuddly yeti costume <laughs> had saved him had absorbed the impact so I'm now thinking of this as some sort of like thing for drunks to wear <laughs> <laughs> you go out on New Year's Eve in a big Yeti costume. They do look like Don't great care outfits. What they do look like great outfits to just stumble around. And <laughs> you get by a car and you just bounce gently over the hood. And Safety first. <laughs> like there's this thing now you can do where like you get into like a giant inflatable 
ball and you like literally just roll down a mountainside oh, yeah. and this yeah. is like a I don't know if this makes sense, but like casual extreme sports thing. I'm just yeah. casual extreme sports. <laughs> that sounds like my kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> where you just roll down in this giant cushiony ball. And, yeah, yeti suits, basically that. I will say I am continually struck again by how dull Victoria is, and I'm amazed at how easily she screams. She screams over nothing. I feel like there should be some sort of like Doctor Who Monsters Inc. mashup where she's just like yeah. the softest touch ever to get scream out of it. How much of that is lazy writing and how much of that is an attempt to portray this is a woman from the Victorian era. It it might kind of be. the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know. And conversely this episode reminded me how much I like Jamie because I, I haven't watched a lot of Patrick Trotton. But Jamie is one of the one of the f- companions that is really in the same show as the Doctor. It's one of the things that the modern series really suffer from of only having modern day British everyday characters. Yeah. It's just fun that he actually is a character in a Doctor Who show who interacts with the character of Doctor Who rather than just a sort of blank slate stand-in for the audience members mm-hmm. to project themselves onto. Yeah. And he just has a really fun interaction. And he's with always so gung-ho. Yeah, but when he and Victoria are exploring the cave, and at first he he's nervous because, well, this is a wild animal cave, I'm not going to go in there. But then when he sees there's some evidence that it's just a guy, he's like, ah! I'm not afraid of a guy. I'll go in. This, you know, might be some crazed psychopath with a machine gun, but I'll go in there as long as it's not a wild animal. I, I could be wrong about this, but this is like one of the, maybe the first stories where the doctor kind of refers to something he did like before the series even started. Like like the whole, this whole reason yeah. for going with the to bell. this monastery was mm-hmm. to return this bell that he took for some reason, which must have happened in the early in the first doctor's life. I think they said it was like 300 years earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think you're right, Kelvin. I, I can't think of an earlier example. He uh, name drops. He refers to being other places, but it's a throwaway yeah. line. It's yeah. not important to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he got to dig through his, um, you know, big case of crap and find <laughs> pipes in his big fur coat. So we, we've talked a lot around the periphery of the story, which is maybe the most interesting part of it. I, I you know, the it, reconstruction, the continuity of it, our reactions, reader response. And I think we should wrap it up, but mm-hmm. is there anything fundamental about the story that we want to talk about? Did they I, ever... I've said that I thought it was a very, very mild story. Yes. It was very relaxing. I enjoy it because I enjoy Doctor Who. I enjoy mm-hmm. the, the interactions between the characters, but it's frustrating because because I can only see it on reconstructions, and so that mm-hmm. makes me work harder than I want to work for this story. It is kind of Doctor Who by the numbers. It's very cozy. The mm-hmm. one existing episode makes me think what might stand out about it is some of the visuals, if, if we had those. Yeah. I found it a little dull, and unfortunately, since I watched, as I said, a super craptacular reconstruction of it, uh, I could not be engaged by it at all. And that wasn't the story's fault. It was my reconstruction's fault. Oh, yeah, one other thing. What exactly was the great experiment? What exactly was the, the great intelligence's goal here? He's That's like, a like, good mm. question. Yeah, he's just like, <laughs> I'm just going to create these Yeti robots. I've never thought could, about this question. Control <laughs> exactly right now. And we're talking, I mean, he's always referring to it as the great experiment. It, it, it doesn't sound like an invasion. That's probably answered in Matt Smith's series, right? Because <laughs> I. He's clearly got a plan, though, because he's got a game board. 
like in the five doctors. Oh my god, he plays that. war games. Oh, I love that Padma Sambhava plays a f- war game. With oh. Yeti. Yeah, oh, the little Yeti. I'm going to make that. I'm going to make that and we're going to play that next time. That's a very niche market, but I think the people who are in that niche are going to go bananas. Something in there about him wanting to create a physicality, but there's no real mention of why or to yeah, what purpose, it, it, was or that, even to why to maintain it. Yeah, was that was that the so, great intelligence's thing? Was that it just it's a formless thing that's trying to be concrete? You can read a, that into it. Yeah, it wants to create physical, so it creates uh, a robot form based on a biological form, and it can do mind control. It can take a uh, take over the llama mm-hmm. there, but it can't go further than that. Mm-hmm. And now we're stretching, right? And, and I think we're, just, we're retroactively filling in. We know by Web of Fear they are trying to invade the planet. So yeah. I think we're just filling that in as Doctor Who nerds. Like this was, this was like the Great Intelligence's dry run. We're just going to try it in this very isolated part of the Earth. Yeah. And if it works on monks... <laughs> no, we're it's not going to be fucked by anyone. Yeah. It really, you know, it could be something like uh, Eros and Psyche back in the Greek mythological days. You know, it's like spirit wanting to take on form, and then instead of loving form, it decides to aggressively construct it and destroy. But okay, I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> no, uh, that was very yeah, I, a, a profound knowledge of literary and mythological yeah. history there. That which, which I may or not, may not be present in this episode. <laughs> Thinking no. Uh, Abominable Snowman, actually, I like it a lot. Pleasant. Very pleasant. Amiable. I want them to animate it. Yeah, animate it, mm-hmm. yeah. I want them to animate all of the old... I really do. I ...missing episodes. Yeah. We'll see how Power of the Daleks does. Gentlemen, it's time for round four, which, because this is our special anniversary episode, we're going to do another round of... Trivia! Trivia! Josh, please put a reverb or echo around that. Are we, are we, going, say, are we all going to be... Is, is an ice volcano going to erupt on us? Joshua. Yes. Question number one. Which familiar Doctor Who actor played the role of book publisher head honcho Joel in 2016's Absolutely Fabulous The Movie? Is it A, Paul McGann, B. John Barrowman, C. Noel Clark, or D. Mark Gatiss. Wow. <laughs> I did not see that movie. I have no idea. This is going to be a stab in the dark. I'm going to say Mark Gatiss. Is that your final answer? Is it D. Mark Gatiss? <laughs> Only if it's right is it my final answer. <laughs> is it your final answer? It is. That is correct. Yeah. Mark Gatiss played the role of book publisher head honcho Joel in 2016's Absolutely Fabulous mm. The Movie. Congratulations, Josh. Yes. Tony. Yes. Which familiar Doctor Who actor <laughs> played the role of Dr. Gordon Briscoe in 2005's <laughs> live broadcast remake of The Quatermass Experiment? Was it A, David Tennant, B, Christopher Eccleston, C, John Sim, or D, Mark Gatiss? It's 2005, so that's when I actually had a life and I did watch that, but that was 2005. It was 11 years ago. I can't remember that far back. (laughs) 
2005 should not be 11 years. Would you like me to repeat the question? I'm going to say Tenant because I I remember him being in it. Is that your final answer? (laughs) Sure! (laughs) You are correct! David Tennant played the role of Dr. Gordon Briscoe in the 2005 live broadcast remake of The Quatermass Experiment. For the record, Mark Gatiss played the role of John Paterson. Kelvin, which familiar Doctor Who actor played the role of Dr. Curlew in the four-part 2011 TV miniseries The Crimson Petal and the White. Was it A. Richard E. Grant, B. Billy Piper, C. Freema Agamon, or D. Mark Gatiss? <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy. I, it's I, challenging. I, 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 I want to I say Richard E. Grant, but I have the weirdest feeling it's going to be Freema Agamon. So I'm going to say Freema. Is that your final answer? Yes. It's it a is. weird Freema feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you're wrong. Ah! It was Richard E. Grant. Ah! For the record, Mark Gatiss played the role of Henry Rackham Jr. in The Crimson Petal and the White. All right, Josh, you mm-hmm. and Tony are tied at one point yes, each. We are. Question number four Which former Doctor Who script editor has the same name? as the guitarist from the new wave band Till Tuesday, famous for their 1985 top ten hit Voices Carry. <laughs> Was it A, David... <laughs> no, guys, I got this. No. Was it A, David Whitaker, okay. B, Robert Holmes, C, Douglas Adams, or D, Helen Rayner? Would you like me to repeat the question? No, I'm going to say... Voices carry. Voices carry. Hush, hush, keep it down now. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of gothic. I'm going to say Robert Holmes. Is that your final answer? It's my only answer. (laughs) That is correct. Robert Holmes has the same name as the guitarist from the New Wave Band Till Tuesday, famous for the 1985 top ten hit Voices Carry. I didn't know how much I know. A thousand monkeys and a thousand typewriters. (laughs) Tony. Yeah? In The Mile High Job, a 2009 TV crime show episode. Three characters have the following exchange concerning fake ID cards. Character A. Let's see. We have Peter Davison, Sylvester McCoy, and I have a Tom Baker. Character B. Oh yeah, I have a Baker, Sarah Jane. Character C. Perfect. I now pronounce you man and wife. Now go on and kiss that bride. What's the show? Is it A, The Mentalist, B, Life on Mars, C, Criminal Minds, or D, Leverage? I don't think I'm wild stab and go with Leverage. Is that your final answer? Sure. That's correct. Oh, it is Timothy Hutton and Leverage. You and Josh are now tied. Oh, Kelvin, let's see if you can that. catch up now. This is embarrassing. Question. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, Kelvin. Which Booker Prize winning author's fourth novel includes a brief reference to the third Doctor adventure, The Mutants? Is it... <laughs> A. John Banville B. Kingsley Amos 
C, Marlon James, or D, Selman Rushdie? I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, Well, hey, Tony, Tony got that question right. How do you, how do you come up with these questions? My God. <laughs> I'm going to say Salman Rushdie just because I got the slightest hint uh, of geekiness from him and it just kind of in general from what I know of him. So I'm going to say Salman Rushdie. Is that your final answer? Yes. That is totally correct. Yeah! Oh, thank God. And your reasoning is totally correct <laughs> yeah. because he has lots of nerdy stuff. Mm-hmm. In his, but yes, it's in the Satanic Verses oh, oh. and there is a small reference as I I was pretty I darn said. sure it wasn't yes. Kingsley Amos. <laughs> <laughs> To recapitulate, Josh and Tony have two points each, and Kelvin has one. Yeah. It's anyone's game as we go into the final round of questions. Do you have a tiebreaker? I do. Okay. Joshua, the second Doctor adventure, The Enemy of the World, which we discussed on this podcast earlier this year. Oh, I remember it. Prominently features music by this composer... Specifically selections from the early 20th century works, music for strings, percussion, and celesta, and the miraculous mandarin. Is it A, Bella Bartok, B, Anton Webern, C, Percy Granger, or D, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov? I'm going to say Percy Granger because that's the one I can remember that you said. (laughs) I could repeat the question. Nope. I think this will work for me. <laughs> Percy Granger is your final answer. That is my final that answer. That is incorrect. No. It is Bella Bartok. Uh, I thought for sure that had Anton Weber and all over it. <laughs> Tony, which familiar Doctor Who actor played the role of Stephen Gardiner in the six-part 2015 TV miniseries Wolf Hall. Was it A, Harry Lloyd, who I will remind you played Jeremy in Human Nature slash Family of Blood. He's also Viserys in Game of Thrones. Oh, yes, him. B, Thomas Brody Sangster, uh, who played Tim in Human Nature slash Family of Blood. He's also Jojen Reed in Game of Thrones. C, Jonathan Price, who needs no introduction. Or D, Mark Gatiss. <laughs> Would you like me to repeat the question? Uh, no, because I'm going to pick B, because he is also the voice of Ferb on Phineas and Ferb. So your answer is whom? Uh, Thomas Brody Sangster, is that it? Uh, that is his name. Yes. <laughs> it is also incorrect. <laughs> Harry Lloyd played the role of Henry Percy. Thomas Brody Sangster played the role of Rafe Sadler. Jonathan Price played the role of Cardinal Wolsey. And Mark Gatiss played the role of Stephen Gardiner in the six-part 2015 TV miniseries Wolf Hall. Both you and Joshua have failed this last. So, <laughs> Kelvin, if you answer yeah. this last question, you can tie. A three-way See, I, tie. I, 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 could, I could have sworn that Mark Gatiss played Slappy the Janitor. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking of the 1985 version oh, of Wolf okay. Hall. <laughs> Kelvin, to catch up here, which of these Mark Gatiss Doctor Who novels 
Which of these Mark Gatiss Doctor Who novels features the seventh Doctor, Ace, and Benny? Is it Nightshade, St. Anthony's Fire, The Roundheads, or Last of the Gadarene? The... I know you're in the you're in the big leagues now, son. Boy, uh, <laughs> the one that is ringing the most bells for me, and it's a very tiny bell. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with Saint Anthony's Fire. Is that your final answer? Yes, it's totally correct. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Nightshade features the Seventh Doctor and Ace only. Yep, that was an earlier uh, one. The Roundheads features Second Doctor, yeah. Jamie, Ben, and Polly, which I, you knew. I knew that, yeah. And Last of the Gadarene He's is third doctor. third doctor, Joe, and Unit. Okay. So what this means, fellas, is that you're all tied <laughs> going into the final round. And that wow. you were apparently only able to come up with one actual Doctor Who trivia question. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Mark Gatiss trivia. Uh, all right, you guys. Gotta go into the file cabinets for this one. <laughs> you weren't you were expecting an unanticipated. You weren't expecting breaker. three whole slips of paper. <laughs> all right, listeners, this is unprecedented. <laughs> all three of our contestants are close enough to enter our tiebreaker round. What I'm going to do is ask them to write a number on their slip of paper. Whoever comes closest to the actual answer will win the prize. Gentlemen, for the tiebreaker question, could you put a gong in here, Josh? (laughs) Just do a gong. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, only... Not like that. (laughs) (laughs) Gentlemen, for the tiebreaker question, counting Christmas specials, but not counting webisodes, spinoffs, how many individual episodes of the new Doctor Who series have been broadcast? There is no penalty for going over. This is not the price is right for God's sake. This is wait, I can't do I can't do math in my head like this. This is asking a wait, lot. shit, that's no that doesn't make sense. I'm already changing my answer. Josh is calculating. <laughs> hurry, up, hurry up, we still need to talk about the oh, audios. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me use the bathroom when I come back. <laughs> Uh, no, I got it. I got I it. Forgot. We got a lot more road to cover scripture. No, I got it. Faster. <laughs> I forgot we actually had things to do. What? It's only 11.30. Pat's dragged us down this blind alley when we still got a journey to cover. Wait, can we use a calculator? <laughs> Pat's in the bathroom. As long as you're not going to the BBC website. <laughs> oh. I don't know about you guys, but I'm super hyped up. <laughs> like, whoa, oh, what's going on? I just, are we, to, are we, whew, are we good? Oh, I think I we gotta, got it. I'm glad someone's taking this seriously. Yeah, no, I'm gonna, really I'm gonna win. Okay, I got it. It's a lot of investment there. That's coming. Oh my god. Okay, so our listeners 
don't know that that was about two weeks between <laughs> took a long me answering time. the question the and, breaks and people had to leave to go to work a couple of times. Pat ate some mints. <laughs> so the question was that counting Christmas specials, but not counting webisodes, how many individual episodes of the new Doctor Who series have been broadcast? Josh, what is your answer? 128. Tony, what is your answer? Uh, 132. Kelvin, what is your answer? Uh, 108. It is astonishingly 128. Wow! <laughs> so nice. Josh, Josh got it exactly right. God damn it! Exactly right. He showed his work on the card and everything, too. He's got a broken his prize better be good. <laughs> I, just, I, I, just I confess took, that I... 108 is just 9 times 11. That's all I can get. I confess I didn't see an exact answer coming. Uh, yes. But, uh... Can... Congratulations, <laughs> Josh. So, um, all right, uh, I, I have your prize here. Now, you won the last trivia of I, the Excellence uh, last year, uh, but here I hope you'll you'll get some use out of this. It's Doctor Who toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be. He's he's, he's got a book. It might. This is paper. the new Doctor Who adventure, Saint Anthony's Fire, by Mark Gatiss, <laughs> my favorite author. Uh, how did you know? <laughs> well, you know, like, he could be a better novelist than a screenwriter. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> It is time for our fifth and final round, The Death Zone. We're going to continue our discussion of Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart as we discuss the Brigadier slash Sixth Doctor audio adventure, The Spectre of Lanyon Moore, versus the Brigadier slash alternate Doctor Who Unbound slash David Warner audio Masters of War. Where do we even begin, fellas? Well, let's do this in chronological order and start with the Spectre of Lanyon Moore, which came out really early in Big Finish's run. Very early. 2000. It's the ninth release. Yep. Well, yep. This June is so 2000. early, so early that it was actually released on cassette as well as CD. And you can actually pay a lot for those cassettes now. (laughs) They're a rarity. It was written and directed by Nicholas Pegg, which is we have talked about. He is also an actor, and he directed many of the early Big Finish stories, and he is a lead Dalek operator for the new series. He's been in every single uh, Dalek episode of the new series. So, oh, he's like the guy who knows everything about David Bowie. This is this is the same Nicholas Pegg who we talked about a little bit. Yeah, his main thing is that he's like, oh, I'm a guy who works on Doctor Who, but then his thing that he'll be remembered in the ages for <laughs> is that he's a super crazy obsessed David Bowie fan who wrote the definitive book on the subject. Uh, this is, as far as I know, the only Big Finish audio written by him, although he is directed and starred in quite a few more. Uh, Holy Terror, he directed. One of our favorite audios ever. 
Also of note, it's one of the stories that was originally written for Tom Baker when Big Finish, oh. when they first started, were trying to pitch stories to Tom to get him on board. We now know that many, many, many years later, Tom Baker has agreed to do Big Finish audios. But originally, Holy Terror, Spectre of Landing Moore, Tom Baker turned them all down. So that's why I think this has this interesting sort of Hinchcliffe gothic feel to it set on Earth, a kind of story that the Sixth Doctor did not get on TV, which is part of what feels really warm and cozy and nostalgic about this audio to me. It also explains some of the characterization that Colin Baker has with the character. It feels more, it doesn't feel so much like a Colin Baker Doctor Who in the way that his personality is presented in a lot of places. Well, again, to give a little more backstory on Big Finish at this time, they were intentionally trying to introduce uh, the new character of Evelyn Smythe, who's mm. the companion It's only her great. second story. Second story. And it was meant a lot like Capaldi's Doctor and Clara mm -hmm. in their second season, where she was the companion who was trying to soften him. So we get those yep. scenes where he loses his temper with the professor, and she takes him aside. Mm -hmm. Again, very yep. reminiscent of uh, the Twelfth Doctor and Clara. Mm -hmm. And this is them trying to reposition a mellower Sixth Doctor who's learning to control himself a little. Well, and I also like the he respects. It, it, it felt like that, and it felt like what you heard Colin Baker talk about where he had intended, he thought he was going to be on for mm -hmm. years, and so he would have a chance to have a character development arc. So this feels like it would be later in those seasons that never mm -hmm. happened. So it's it's very, it's fun. It's a nice one. I thought it was kind of fun to see the Doctor being um, like less of a time traveler and more of like just sort of an amateur archaeologist. Yeah. When he like just kind of goes into the fugu and he's like, by the way, fugus figure prominently in the story. I had to look this up. I had no idea what they are. There's some sort of late Stone Age, Bronze Age uh, artifact in Cornwall. Ancient rock things, and we don't really know what they're used for. But it does give an opportunity for Colin Baker to say the word fugu over and over again, which it's is worth the entire price of the audio. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and the doctor goes into like the fugu, and he admits, like, I have no idea why these are, are here. I've always meant to like look at them being built to figure out what's going on, but uh, instead he's just in the modern day poking around in one, just kind of speculating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally this whole uh, audio takes its time. It reminds me of an old style Doctor Who story. Mm -hmm. it, it is maybe a little too long. It could probably use a little bit of editing, but there's a lot of conversation like just about Fugus and about the historical setting with his companion Evelyn, who is a historian, so it feels less like exposition. When you're traveling through time with another historian, you would have these conversations. It feels really cozy, despite it being rather grim. It kind of feels like an amalgamation of Hinchcliffe with like the Eric Sayward body count. At the end, everybody's dead. <laughs> That's the only 80s quality that slips in. The dialogue is very, very artificial, mm -hmm. but it's fun. Mm -hmm. So there's an extended joke about the Sydney Opera House. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Or there's... Evelyn has some hilarious thing where she asks, Oh, has Abel Magwitch escaped from the prison oh. hulks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a great expectations reference that I didn't expect to see coming. And this is this is the arch sort of stuff that we would expect from Nicholas Pegg. Um, yes. who knows everything about everything. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of references in here. And the villains are very classic Doctor Who, just megalomaniacal. I mean the villain in here is essentially kind of a Cornish satanic Donald Trump really is what he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got to acknowledge that he's a this sort of parodic David Bowie 
character. Uh, it, mm. It's it's not Bowie himself, but uh, at some point Evelyn asks the the, the Earl or mm-hmm. the Duke or whatever he is, uh, are you closer to the Golden Dawn? Which is a legitimate paraphrase of a line from Bowie's Quicksand, which is not at all surprise, surprising that uh, Nicholas Pegg uh, oh. does it there. But also... All the stuff about Aleister Crowley, that's, uh, this bubbles up from early period David Bowie stuff that uh, Nicholas Pegg just has in his background. Like, oh, this is the sort of nonsense that I'm just going to drop into this story to bubble away into nothingness. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I really enjoyed uh, Mrs. Moynihan. The, the, the level of disdain uh, from her was uh, pretty entertaining. She actually says the tea lady is in charge now. <laughs> you know, maybe think like, a, like yeah. an evil Mrs. Doyle from Father Ted. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Pat, when you were talking before about Turlo and how there must be some British school references in the episode that we wouldn't be getting as Americans. And she is very much another sort of those British... Yeah. stereotypical cultural references that just popped right in there and reversed that's really makes it entertaining that, that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean she's torn apart by dogs, which is pretty horrific. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of there's a lot, there's of, a lot of, of horror in this. Yeah, it's it's very much a you know, early Tom Baker yeah. era kind of stuff. And it's out there on the moors. So creepy stuff happening. The brigadier in this episode is very much that later fondly remembered character in the doc he immediately recognizes the doctor which is a nice moment because yes. no one else would show up dressed like that unannounced. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a nice little nod to the past and they instantly warm to one another the doctor takes on the fans love of the character even if it doesn't totally match up with how he interacted with him before. And we this is a lot like Battlefield. The Brigadier is treated like an old hero. He gets a chance to sacrifice himself, and they go off together as fond good friends. It's very different than the depiction of the character of the Brigadier in the other audio we want to talk about, mm-hmm. Masters of War. To give listeners a little context, this is one of the Big Finish Unbound series where they do kind of what-ifs with other actors and other scenarios involving Doctor Who. This is David Warner as an alternate version of the third Doctor who got sent to Earth, not in the 70s, but in the late 90s, early 2000s. So basically the Brigadier in this Unbound universe was left alone without the Doctor to deal with all these alien menaces, and his career... He was kind of made fun of. No one believed him. He failed a lot. And so we are dealing with a brigadier who is a little rougher around the edges than the brigadier from our universe. And this is a sequel to another story called Sympathy for the Devil. Which we talked about in an earlier podcast. Yeah. And this is an alternate story about the Daleks. And it's the Doctor returns to Scarrow sometime after having been there to do some version of the original Hartnell events of helping the Thals defeat the Daleks. Mm-hmm. It all hinges on this idea mm-hmm. that Davros decided to add a little bit of compassion and pity to the Daleks to keep them from turning on him. Because yeah. he figured out, unlike in the TV show, every every time he creates a Dalek, they ultimately think they're superior than him and turn on him. And they reference that in the story where he talks about, or the, the Doctor talks about, well, these Daleks aren't anything like ones that I've run into in the past. They've all been just ruthless killing machines. And it's explained that, oh, those are those other Daleks that came before us. And went out into the universe with these more 
sympathetic derelicts came back to protect the Thals from this other third alien race. In terms of conquering them. And yes. Getting them and so to be stronger a, yeah. under the Dalek rule. Yeah. So the Daleks' idea of helping the Thals is to basically yeah. enslave them and make them, make them stronger and tougher and protect them from one of the worst named aliens ever, yeah. the Quatch. The Quatch. Pretty close. Which just sounds like a euphemism for female anatomy to me. Yeah. That's all I could think of. Okay, name aside, I rather liked the Quatch. Can you just stop saying it, though? <laughs> they were quatch-tastic. Spectacular. Uh, but no, I like the quatch, and I kind of wish... Uh, it, from what I gather, they're not considered to be really a part of the Doctor Who universe. Like, even though they're, they're extra-dimensional and could be part mm-hmm. of the Doctor... You know, they're they're not. But I, I found them rather... You know, like, a, like an interesting variant of the Daleks. You know, another alien being that... It has this these mechanical components, but they have a, a psychology that seemed fairly distinct, like this weird obsession with strategy. But it is an, an interesting, different version of that mechanized Dalek type of enemy, only instead of it being about exterminate and just blow things up, they're all about analysis and strategy. It, it's, it's a nice introduction of a new alien race that dovetails in better with the existing characters and races than I've certainly seen in a lot of the episodes. And was inspired from what I read by some very, very early drafts of Terry Nation's original Dalek script that had a third alien race in it that was somehow affecting this fight between the Daleks and the Thals. And mm-hmm. They probably rightly said, we don't need a third alien. Yeah. We can barely afford this show as it is. <laughs> yeah, the retconning of yeah. getting the Quatch involved yeah. between the Thals uh, and the, well, it would have been the yeah. Collins back then. That was that was fun, too. Yeah. And really, I think that this second story is, is gives a lot of time and energy to the Brigadier, who is this yeah. sort of burnt-out mm-hmm. soldier who's trying to find some way to redeem his career and find some place to settle. You actually and make a see difference. the Brigadier doing like legitimate military stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the whole thing we could talk about regarding illogicality and unpredictability <laughs> and irrationality uh, in terms of game theory. Uh, what the Brigadier is doing is essentially unpredictability. Uh, mm-hmm. Although there's, um, in more sophisticated forms, there's actually a kind of sound strategy to make your opponent feel that I'm a crazy person, and so I might do this thing, and yeah. so you. No, but we'll we'll save that for a later <laughs> podcast. It is an example of a writer making humans seem to be superior by being magically unpredictable, and yet all the things that he's doing, they're pretty straightforward strategies. Yeah. It's like yeah. they didn't yeah. come up with this in any of their strategy the, analysis. I think this is where this really suffers. It's a little too long, and there's almost an entire second disc of this combat situation yeah. with this mm-hmm. sort of very Terry Nation trope. The the humans are irrational, and, and the Daleks and the Quatch or whoever they're fighting can't figure out their motives. And to me, I don't think there was quite enough story for two discs. I think this would have been a really interesting one disc like the original Unbound series, but it really dragged, I thought, in the second half. Mm. Having said that, this is a story in which the Doctor and the Brigadier lead a mixed force of Daleks and Thals against mm-hmm. an army of enemies. And I'm like, I... I <laughs> That's not something I would have predicted ever. <laughs> no, it, 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 it's very, it's very much embracing alternate universe mm-hmm. stuff. And there's, this is one of the last 
times that uh, Nicholas Courtney performed the Brigadier. Yeah. Um, this this came out the same year as his appearance in Enemy of the Bane for the Sarah Jane Adventures too. Yeah. So so it is nice in this audio. There is a sense of completion. Even though it's an alternate version of the Brigadier, it's a nice final performance. The time frame is interesting to look at because from Battlefield, which was Nick Courtney's last televised appearance, we have Spectre of Landon Moore, mm-hmm. which was his next audio appearance. In the meantime, though, he had done the Dimensions and Time special. Yep. He did the fan videos, Wartime and Downtime, and the two BBC radio dramas, The Paradise of Death and The Ghosts of Endspace, with John Pertwee yeah. and Liz Layden. So, and then he kind of exists in an audio world, and this is the last one. He did some Sarah unit Jane. stories. He, he yeah. read some short stories as the narrator, but yeah. this is the last time, and I dramatized audio. Yeah, so the two stories we're talking about in the death zone right now are kind of at the beginning and Mm -hmm. the end of his post-Doctor Who televised career. So where are we going with it? What are we we doing here? We need to make a final decision. I'm going to give it to Spectre of Lanyon Moore, even though I think we get a little more of a sophisticated portrayal of the Brigadier in Masters of War. I feel like Part of it is just nostalgia for me. Big Finish is now old enough that I have huge nostalgia toward these early releases from 16 years ago. And I think it maybe comes down to both stories are audio takes on classic TV tropes. I think Masters of War is more of a take on a weird mix of Terry Nation tropes with new series stuff with a little more attempt to emotionalize the characters, uh, whereas uh, Spectre Lanny Moore is a total Hinchcliffe with a little bit of uh, sayward body count with Colin Baker, for good measure, and um, I just love the mix of mix of characters in that one and the setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both very enjoyable. I, I feel Masters of War was a little too bloated for my taste. Yeah, I think Lanny Moore just is a straight-up better story. Masters of War does a lot of really interesting things. It does interesting things with the, the continuity differences and the character stuff is good and the performances are great. But it, yeah, I think Landing Moore is just a better Doctor Who story. Certainly more in keeping with what you would expect from a Doctor Who story. And it's just fun. You can and really picture it as that sort of running around out on the moors and mm-hmm. you know the characters in costume and everything and, and, and Masters of War just kind of gets a little out of hand. And plus, I love David Warner as an actor, and I oh, love yeah. the idea of him as the Doctor, but he gives a pretty pleasant but pretty phoned-in performance in, yeah. in both his stories as, as the Doctor. So. Yeah. Colin? i got to go with Masters of War. And of course it, you do. Yeah, it, 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 it was, it's a tough choice. These, I, the, I bo- enjoy both of these stories quite a bit. But I think just the epicness, for lack of a better term, of Masters of War just kind of won me over and I think it is like about as good of a, a send off for the Brigadier, even if it's an alternate universe Brigadier. Mm-hmm. It still seems like it's such a great send off for him. That is true. And uh, something about like the the Doctor and the Daleks finally being able to work together yep. is, is somehow rewarding to me. And, I can't argue with you. Yeah. I mean, you're wrong, but I can't argue. With you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> it, is, and, it is very satisfying in a sort of therapeutic sense. Like all these yeah. characters are kind of working out their problems mm-hmm. and their differences and kind of growing as as species. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As usual, Kelvin is right. <laughs> Uh, I love both of these audios, but yeah, being able to leapfrog beyond the normal Doctor Who 
Spectre of Landing Moor is really, really good stuff, but it's well within the bounds of normal Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So, so to have Masters of War and the Brigadier and the Doctor leading a mixed force of a Thal Dalek army against some other nonsense alien race, that's just... Quatch. Just say it. You can't even bring yourself to say the word Quatch, but go ahead. The nonsense Quatch race. Against the crotch. <laughs> It's just terrific, you guys. Oh, that's awesome. You're right. David Warner does not give his best performance, but you don't realize how constrained Doctor Who can be mm-hmm. until you start to do these Doctor Who unbound things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a draw on the death zone. Well, we're yeah, we're disintegrating here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're just we're just like the current uh, Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> we are exactly like the current Supreme Court. That's just, that's just the parallel I want to draw. <laughs> Supreme Court unbound. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. This has been Get Off My World, our somewhat sort of second anniversary show. This has been a lot of fun. I'm glad we did this for yet another year, and I think we've got a few more years of doing this. There's a lot of Doctor Who out there. <laughs> There does seem to be. More. It's really frustrating. Oh, damn it. <laughs> You'll never get ahead. It's just like my job. <laughs> so, speaking for the show, this is Tony. I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And we're saying. Yeah. Oh, you guys, I'm so drunk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>